Thank you for joining me. Um, so a lot to discuss. I want to start with the world's most dangerous crisis, that is the proxy war in Ukraine. And since the Russian invasion began almost a year ago, uh, French President Emmanuel Macron has gone out of his way to say many times that we are not at war with Russia. He's wanted to make that very clear, that, that NATO's role is simply to help Ukraine defend itself. But this is not a NATO war against Russia. Well, that's been obviously false for a long time, given the huge level of uh, NATO military involvement inside of Ukraine, um, given how much intelligence goes into it and how much weapons goes into it, how much political support, diplomacy, all that stuff. And, and how, for example, when Ukraine and Russia engaged in peace talks, it was Boris Johnson that came over to Zelensky and said, no, it's not a time for peace. It's a, it's a time to keep fighting Russia. And Zelensky followed his orders. But just to make it official, this week, uh, the German foreign minister, Annalena Barabach, made it plain when she said the following. And therefore, I've said already in the last days, yes, we have to do more to defend Ukraine. Yes, we have to do more also on tanks. But the most important and the crucial part is that we do it together and that we do not do the blame game in Europe because we are fighting a war against Russia and not against each other. Thank you. So there you have it. According to the foreign minister of Germany, uh, we are fighting a war against Russia. And our Germany has started to basically um, disclaim that comment from her and said that uh, Russian propagandists are distorting it, but she makes it plain. Uh, we are fighting a war against Russia. It doesn't get more plain than that. And it's a refreshing admission because that is what is happening. Uh, the latest phase of it was um, the U.S. and Germany making this agreement to send tanks over to Ukraine. The U.S. tanks won't arrive for a very long time, uh, maybe not even until next year. Uh, but the U.S. commitment to sending tanks, that unlocked a German commitment to sending tanks because Germany didn't want to act alone. And so now Germany will be sending tanks to the battlefield. And um, now there's talk of F-16s. So immediately on the same day that Germany and the U.S. announced their tanks, uh, Ukraine began saying we need F-16 fighter jets. And Lockheed Martin, which makes the F-16, responded by saying, hey, we're ready. And we're we're actually ramping up production to make sure that there's more F-16s available. And now there's talk in the Pentagon of supporting that. There's a headline in Politico today, at the Pentagon, push to send F-16s to Ukraine picks up steam. And on principle, as I said before, it's fair, I think, that Ukraine is armed to defend itself. But I think the question for Ukraine's NATO allies is, is this the best policy for everyone, especially Ukrainians? And are there diplomatic alternatives? Can there be some sort of diplomacy that can avert this? And the only way to find that out is to try. And right now, there's zero appetite for diplomacy among all these states. Their only recourse is weapons. And that's why uh, the NATO chief, uh, Jan Stoltenberg, said recently that weapons are the way to peace, that for there to be a peace settlement in Ukraine, we have to flood it with weapons first. Uh, no thought at all given to diplomacy. And when to me, you know, whether it happens now or later, the diplomacy will be the same. Um, there's going to have to be 
a effort to address Russia's stated concerns that they laid out before the war, which is the placement of NATO military infrastructure surrounding Russia. Um, what they wanted was simply not the dismantling of all NATO military infrastructure surrounding Russia, but just a rollback of the military infrastructure that's been put in place after 1997, when NATO massively expanded. And so that was Russia's demand. And just to show how disinterested NATO officials are in that kind of diplomacy, something that could recognize that Russia has legitimate security concerns of being surrounded by the military um, power of a hostile military alliance. Uh, the uh, NATO um, military com committee chief, his name is Admiral Rod Bauer, he said this uh, in a recent interview. Shown us in a document, it was a concept treaty text in December 21. They sent us uh, a text which basically uh, uh, said we had to go back to the, to the pre-1997 situation. Uh, and uh, that's what they're aiming for. That's their strategic objective. But you don't believe that it's only about to come. No, it is about turning back to the old Soviet Union. The nations in NATO thought for decades that we were owning the timelines. We were the ones that decided to go to Afghanistan, to go to Iraq. It was a decision from NATO, from the NATO nations. And uh, so we owned the timelines. We were saying, when are we going, with how many troops, for how long, etc. Now we are facing a threat, which is Russia, that is coming to us uninvited at a moment of their choosing. So we have to be much more ready. We have no time to prepare because it is up to them when or uh, when they come. We are ready to a direct confrontation with Russia. We are. Are we ready for nuclear war? And do you believe in that possibility? I think uh, Vladimir Putin is not insane. Uh, so that's the good news. Uh, he has ideas that are not uh, uh, our ideas uh, and that but he's not insane. So he is, uh, he's still uh, a rational person. Um, and I think that is important with regard to the use of nuclear weapons. Well, I think um, it's extremely important that we all continue to agree on the fact that a nuclear war should not be fought and can never be won. So here he says there, he's um, incredulous at this notion that Russia is asking NATO to roll back some of its military posture. And that's what that was the basis of that December 2021 treaty that Russia put out there to the U.S. NATO, which the U.S. NATO pretty much rejected. Uh, the U.S. had a little bit more flexibility than NATO. But on the core issues, both the U.S. and NATO said, you know, uh, go away. Uh, we don't care. And so and then accordingly, because the the notion of treating Russia as an equal partner or, or at least as someone to negotiate with on its security concerns, because that's so uh, toxic to this admiral, he, he's willing to say we, we're risking a direct confrontation with Russia in response to the interviewer. So that's the attitude uh, in, in NATO right now. Uh, and uh, meanwhile, at home in the U.S., uh, there's another really damning admission, I thought. So Victoria Nuland was speaking for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And Ted Cruz, the senator, was basically trying to get her to apologize for uh, the Biden administration briefly pausing sanctions on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline 
before Russia invaded. Uh, because there was a time when Germany said that it, U, U.S. sanctions on the Nord Stream 2 were making it very difficult for Germany because uh, the pipeline could not be built if these sanctions remained in place. And so the Biden administration said that it was lifting these sanctions uh, temporarily, but that if Russia would invade Ukraine, then the, it got Germany to, to commit to, to killing the Nord Stream 2, which is what happened. So Ted Cruz wanted Victoria Nuland to admit that the, the U.S. should never lift those sanctions at all. They always should have stayed in place. And he was basically arguing that had those sanctions stayed in place the whole time, then Russia never would have invaded. So Victoria Nuland said this in response to Cruz. Senator Cruz, uh, like you, I am, and I think the administration is very gratified to know that Nord Stream 2 is now, as you like to say, a hunk of metal at the bottom of the sea. So that's Nuland saying that the U.S. administration, Biden administration, and her are gratified that Nord Stream 2 is a hunk of metal at the bottom of the sea. And what she's referring to, she's referring to the fact that the Nord Stream 2 was blown up a few months ago uh, in a major act of industrial sabotage. And that to me is, I think, uh, as close to an admission of guilt as we'll ever get. Um, that's her saying how gratified the U.S. is that the Nord Stream 2 was blown up. I mean, she's basically celebrating an act of international sabotage. And what's funny about that is when the Nord Stream 2 happen, uh, explosion happened, remember there was an attempt to blame Russia, saying that Russia blew up its own pipeline somehow. So now the U.S. is saying that they're gratified by an act that they also were trying to blame on Russia. So uh, that's just a funny uh, irony there. And, um, and it just, but what's interesting to me about that admission is that here Newland is taking pleasure at the sabotage of a pipeline that's not just Russian, it's it's Russian and, and German. It's a joint project. And if you're German and you're watching that, here you have, you know, your supposed ally celebrating a major act of sabotage uh, on a vital piece of infrastructure, which was supplying your cheap energy needs and now is blown up. And that's what Germany gets right after bowing to the U.S., literally the day after bowing to the U.S. on sending tanks to Ukraine, is they get a top U.S. diplomat celebrating the uh, sabotage of one of their most important pieces of infrastructure. It's pretty striking. Um, I see a lot of callers, so I'm going to shorten my rant today. Uh, just to say also another thing, I, I have a lot more to say about Ukraine, and we'll get to it. But an, another major story for me happened this week where the OPCW released a, a report with long-awaited that identifies Syria as the culprit of a chemical attack in Duma in April 2018. Now, previously, the OPCW has released a report that asserted that a chemical attack took place and that strongly suggested that Syria was guilty. But this report is the first time that the OPCW has formally said that Syria was guilty of uh, a chemical attack in Duma. Now, I've covered this story extensively because there have been leaks from inside the OPCW showing that the inspectors who went to Syria to investigate for the OPCW wrote a report that found no evidence of a chemical attack in Duma and found evidence that points to this incident being staged by the sectarian death squads on the ground. And this report uh, is being billed by apologists for the cover-up as somehow a vindication, when in reality, uh, the report does nothing to address all of the many substantive flaws that the OPCW leaks and the whistleblowers have raised, and it only doubles down on the fraud. And I'm working on something now. I'll be out with that very soon, an article going through this. There's a lot to 
go through in this report because it's uh, it's very long. Um, but I, I'll just say that the most recent article I've written about the OPCW in Syria uh, was called Chain of Corruption, How the White Helmets Compromised the OPCW in Syria. And that article is about to become newly relevant because a main point of that article was to show that in Syria, the OPCW, instead of conducting its own investigations, relied on groups like the White Helmets, which is a group funded by the U.S., the U.K., and other foreign belligerents in the Syria Dirty War, and a group that works hand-in-glove with sectarian death squads, including al-Qaeda, a top al-Qaeda leader called them the hidden soldiers of the Mujahideen in Syria. So the OPCW relied on the White Helmets to collect samples for them, and therefore in the process completely broke its own rules about chain of custody, which is that the OPCW will only consider samples that it collects itself. And so what happened in Duma is the OPCW sent a team there and they collected samples uh, and those samples were analyzed and tested. And those samples, as I've reported on before, contain no evidence of a chemical attack. So what happens now in this new report that supposedly finds a smoking gun for Syria being guilty? Well, they rely on new samples that they've just uh, managed to find. And guess who those samples are collected by? They say a third party collected those samples. Well, who was very active uh, in Duma at the time? Who, who, for example, staged the hospital scene uh, in Duma where people were filmed uh, to make it look as if they were the victims of a chemical attack when really everyone there reported that there was no chemical attack and that the White Helmets had staged that scene? Well, the White Helmets uh, were in Duma. Uh, and I am very confident that it was White Helmets that collected this magic new sample that somehow now proves what they couldn't prove before. So um, I'll be ha- I'll have more on that very soon. Uh, but it's just it's an unbelievable like you would not believe how much fraud has gone into this new report and how much and it took them like multi years of effort to put this together. And it makes sense because it requires so much thinking to fudge the facts and to come up with new uh, ways to whitewash what happened. Because now they're not only uh, whitewashing the initial incident in Duma, but they're also whitewashing their own cover-up. And so no wonder it took them so long to try to fabricate uh, all the claims that they needed to be able to do that. So anyway, I'll have more on that very soon. It's uh, it's an amazing story and it should get attention. But what's incredible, and this is the last thing I'll say on this, if you read the, the media accounts so far of this new OPCW report, none of them None of them can even bring themselves to mention that when the OPCW sent a team into Duma originally, that members of that team have accused them of a massive cover-up. So, like, even if you think they're totally wrong, right? Even if you think the whistleblowers are totally wrong, these leaks don't mean anything, like, nothing to see here. The fact you can't bring yourself to acknowledge their existence, even give it a mention at the bottom of the article, that to me speaks to how actually damning these OPCW leaks are. Because if you really thought that they... Uh, that the whistleblowers were wrong. What you would say is the the whistleblowers said this, but this is how they were wrong. But they can't do that because all these outlets know the whistleblowers are right, that the trove of leaks that have come out are so damning about what happened in Duma and about how the OPCW covered it up. They just can't bring themselves to acknowledge their existence. So right out of George Orwell, uh, they've been memory hold. And um, anyway, I, I can say more about that if people want, want to discuss it today. And finally, I'll just say there's a really funny Russiagate development this week. Well, well, there were a few, but the one I'll mention now is uh, Matt Taibbi, uh, as part of the Twitter files, uh, exposed that 
this group called the Alliance for Security Democracy, uh, the Alliance for Securing Democracy ran a scam where basically this was a big deal a few years ago. They claimed to identify all these Russian bots and they were, you know, putting out warnings like the Russian bot activity is massively increasing. Like they're, you know, they're interfering with us. Like beware of the Russian bots. And, uh, so Matt got a hold of a lot of new files from the, from the Twitter files showing that this group behind, uh, uh, this Russian bot craze, the, the Alliance for Securing Democracy and something called the Hamilton 68 dashboard, which they claimed was like a tracker of all Russian bots, was just a fraud, but they had no evidence for it. They pressured Twitter to validate it, to validate it. And Twitter was like, no, because this is a scam. Even Twitter, which had been duped by the Hunter Biden laptop scam, where that was said to be uh, Russian disinformation, even Twitter said no to this one. And here just is an example of back at the time when this was happening. This is from February 2018 how outlets like Morning Joe of MSNBC reported the Russian bot craze. Kremlin-linked accounts flooded Twitter using hashtags like Parkland and Gun Control Now to get into trending conversations. According to data collected by the nonpartisan dashboard Hamilton 68, the trolls then added more incendiary hashtags and explosive imagery to drive their readers to more partisan conversations. Yeah, none of this is normal. Also, I just we, we always we, we keep talking about how the Russians tried to interfere in our last election. Well, they're interfering and the interference continues. Not only did they interfere in the last election when we had Devin Nunes trying to release a memo to undermine an investigation into Russia. They were extraordinarily active. The Russians, their secret service, their bots flooding uh, with hashtags, release the memo, to try to interfere in an American debate to try to derail a Russian investigation. And then we saw again yesterday, once again, the Russian bots, and obviously connected with Russian intel agencies, getting involved in a, in a school shooting to try to stir up unrest and undermine our democracy. So that's the kind of insanity that was just you know, routine on Blue and on stations like MSNBC for years. And by the way, when the host mentions that this was like a, a nonpartisan group, the Alliance for Securing Democracy, what she means is it's bipartisan neocons because it's people like Bill Crystal and John Podesta and Michael Chertoff, all people who are ideologically committed to a new Cold War with Russia and are willing to, you know, sustain these massive propaganda campaigns like this one to get Americans on board. And, you know, as we're seeing now with the Ukraine war spiraling out of control, they've been successful. You have to give them that. Okay. Uh, I see a lot of callers. It's great to see such a long list. Thank you everyone for tuning in. And uh, let's start with Samurai. Hello. Hi. Hey, Aaron. Uh, I was on here a few weeks ago and I I was sick at the time. So I I think I sound a little different, but I'm very happy to be back on. Um, I was the caller who is uh, Syrian, and we talked a bit last time about Syria. Um, I I wanted to just mention, um, you know, in the framing of Russia, uh, it it was very interesting to me because, you know, learning about the White House, I I was following your reporting specifically around the White Helmets and the quote-unquote Duma gas attack. Um, And it was so shocking to me because, you know, it wasn't just a Western dupe, right? We focus on the West, but like, you know, a lot of Syrians in and outside the West were also like, you know, there, there was a very explicit attempt to, um, you know, propagandize people in a certain way. 
Um, um, and I think that it, it, it drew attention away from the fact that Syria quickly, you know, became a proxy war between, you know, some of the world's biggest powers, you know, NATO, Russia, um, all across the Middle East. And, and that, you know, that's really painful as someone who has like direct personal ties and family there. But like, you know, I think more importantly, like it decenters the people who are, who are suffering. Um, and, uh, I think specifically when it comes to this, you know, any, anything to do with Ukraine and Russia, um, we see such, it, it's so striking because we see like at, uh, on the one hand, so much like humanist language of like, oh, like, you know, they're suffering and, you know, power cuts and, you know, look how terrible this is and this war and, you know, the poor Ukrainian, but at the same time, you know, we're ratcheting up, um, tensions and, and using weapons as, as a way to say like, well, we feel so bad. That's why we're, you know, giving these M1 Abrams or whatever the sort of new, <laughs> the new weapon of the day is. Um, because every single one of these lines that Biden has laid out has been crossed. I mean, the high Mars was off the table. The Patriot missiles were off the table. Tanks were off the table. And now everything seems to be on the table. Um, and I really, and I'm glad you paired these two things together, the OPCW and the, um, the German foreign minister, because, you know, again, um, I mean, this is like sad for me, but as a Syrian, like Syria is a good kind of um, case for how you let this sort of, you know, Western chauvinism, imperialism, whatever you want to call it, this sort of like hegemonic power like the U.S. play this cynical role and things will continue to escalate and spiral out of control. And, and I think um, that that is very clear um, that that's what's happening and we're sort of inching closer and closer to nuclear war. Um, but I still think there there are some hopefully glimmers of 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 a path forward. I, I was very heartened to see it wasn't for the I don't think right motivations, but I was very glad to see that um, it looks like now all the major parties in Turkey and this never happens, but all the major parties in Turkey seem to agree that they will not be giving Sweden NATO membership, Sweden NATO membership, uh, because of the politician who was burning the Quran. Which I, I'm Muslim, and I think why would you even do that? That's just a, such a inflammatory awful thing to do like i wouldn't do that to a bible um anyway like that was a sort of glimmer of you know well maybe there are actors who can be persuaded to push towards a diplomatic solution or, or push for a diplomatic solution i think turkey could be one of those actors but you know i think i'm just like it, it just seems like this is an endless cycle and i'm i feel the same way about this conflict i don't have a personal connection to ukraine but I, i'm feeling the same way about this as i did you know, growing up watching Syria continue to yeah. sort of devolve and devolve and hit these sort of ever-growing low points. And so I, I, yeah. and, I appreciate you reporting on that. Was, well, thanks. And, um, you know, when I compare Syria and Ukraine and the U.S. strategy, I, you know, obviously it's not exactly the same, but there, I, there are some parallels. In both cases, the U.S. successfully exploits divisions in the country to destroy it. Um, and on both sides, the U.S. takes the side of, like, uh, extremism uh in syria it's the you know it's the um you know sunni insurgency you know backed by uh, uh saudi arabia and Qatar, and with their really sectarian slogans like um christians to beirut alawites to the grave and that's why the insurgency is dominated by groups like al-qaeda which had that salafi ideology and in ukraine it's the far-right nationalists that are at the heart of the maidan coup in 2014 that are at the heart of the Azov Battalion, which has, you know, played a really 
instrumental role in, in shaping Ukrainian politics, uh, along with groups like the right sector. And they, they exploit these divisions um, and to fuel a civil war. And they fuel it by just pouring in billions of dollars worth of weapons and, and using their power uh, to keep it going. Um, so it's so cynical. And in the case of Syria, I mean, you know, I know I know plenty of leftists who were targeted by the government um, over the years. And for them, they don't have any sort of warm feelings towards the, the Syrian government. But uh, their country, before the dirty war, it wasn't destroyed. Uh, it had health care. It had education. Uh, it had food self-sufficiency. And um, now look at it. It's people are, are barely surviving. Um, so much of it is in ruins and they can't rebuild because of sanctions that are designed to prevent that. You know, and so that's the result of the U.S. exploiting its divisions for, for, for its own reasons. And Ukraine is, seen, you know, I, I think seeing a similar outcome. It's now it's in the case of, of Ukraine, it's um, it, they happen to exploit divisions in a country where Russia has a huge interest. I mean, historically, parts of it were part of Russia. There are millions of people there who consider themselves to be ethnic Russians. And Russia obviously is a lot stronger militarily than the Syrian government. And so Russia is able to do huge damage to to Ukraine. And uh, the strategy now is just to keep it going, just like Syria, uh, to keep it going for as long as possible. And um, it's uh, a tragedy. Thank you for the call. Uh, Zach. Hey, Aaron. Um, just a quick thank you for because uh, there's really not many other spaces that I can uh, find a community on, on this topic. My, my leftist friends are pretty uh, anti my thoughts on this, which is really sad. Um, but I just have two quick questions. Um, one, a lot of what my you know folks in the circles that I spend time say is that what else? What other option do we have in the war? Right? Uh, Putin's going to take over Europe. What What do you, you know, you've been reporting on this for a while. What What is your response to that? When When folks say we have no other option because Putin's going to take over, do this, and then if we don't hold the line, he's going to you know invade other countries. They got to pick a narrative because how can Putin take over Europe if he can't even take over Ukraine, which is on his border? Uh, at best, right now, Russia is taking twenty percent of Ukraine. Uh, but we saw like they haven't been able to. I mean, th the official narrative is that they weren't able to even take over Kiev. I don't think they really tried. But let's say I'm wrong. Then that's even more proof that Russia doesn't have the power to take over Europe. If they can't even take over, a, you know, a capital city in a country that's on their border, how are they going to take over <laughs> any other country? So, so that doesn't make sense. And in terms of what other options there are, why not try diplomacy? Try talking to them. Maybe it will fail spectacularly and. There's no other hope but just to keep pouring in weapons until the last Russian dies. I, I, you know, but but you can't say there's no other option if you're not willing to try the option uh, of peace. And I, I would say the same thing. I would have I would have said the same thing to Russia too before the war. Um, I can't accept that Russia had no choice but to invade. Mm -hmm. Did they exhaust all the diplomatic options? I think they certainly pursued diplomacy. There's no doubt they did that. But did they make every effort they could to avoid this war? It's not my impression that they did. But certainly, they tried diplomacy. They did. Uh, they put out draft treaties, as I mentioned before. They supported the Minsk peace process. And, but, you know, throughout all of it, they were met with um, refusal on the other side. Like, in the, in the, on all the major issues, there was just no willingness to discuss. So, for example, take the Minsk peace process and the, ending the civil war in Ukraine. 
because really there there are there are multi there are like multiple dimensions to this. There's the internal Ukraine issue, which is a civil war in the Donbass, and then there's the Ukraine issue in terms of its future status in NATO. But then more broadly, there's also the other issues I mentioned before, which is NATO's overall posture, not just with Ukraine, but overall, like having mm. NATO military infrastructure in all these states surrounding Russia and having uh, U.S. missile sites in Poland and Romania that can point uh, devastating missiles at Russia. And those are all issues that Russia wanted to address. And so anyway, on the internal Ukrainian issue, in the weeks before the war, Zelensky wouldn't even speak to the leaders of the Donbass rebels. Uh, he wouldn't even talk to them. So, so not only like, like, you know, like, like it, it wasn't just a matter of like him not budging on certain like sticking points in their, in their negotiations. He wouldn't even speak to them. So if you won't speak to the rebels, uh, that, that you're fighting with, how are you going to possibly end that conflict? And that coincided with, you know, Ukraine mobilizing more forces on, you know, around the Donbass and also massively increasing shelling of the Donbass in the days before the invasion. And some military people will say that that was a sign that Ukraine was preparing to actually invade the Donbass. Now, I can't endorse that because I don't have the military expertise, but that's at least um, a significant development that right before Russia invaded, there was a massive mm -hmm. increase in shelling by Ukraine into the Donbass. And so um, that's all a sign that all along Ukraine and its backers have wanted war. And that's why, you know, we've had multiple admissions, like Angela Merkel said recently that the Minsk peace process was, was never intended to make peace. It was intended just to give Ukraine time to prepare for war, basically meaning that the, the Minsk peace process, process like, was a sham. Now, actually, I don't believe her. I think she's just saying that now to try to like cater to the, <laughs> the pro-war sentiment in Germany. But mm -hmm. still, it, it, it's just a it's an it's another um, indication that there's just no mood at all for negotiations inside the West. And why not? Like why not try it? Why not try to address all these issues? Because they're going to have to be addressed one day anyway. I mean, put out a proposal. Like, why not have, why can't we have a referendum in the Donbass and in Crimea and have, commit all sides to respecting it? You know, uh, if we care about democracy and freedom, um, why not try proposals like that? I mean, but there's no thought of that right now. It's all, it's just war. Um. Thank, thank you for the answer. And then the, just the sec second thought, I don't want to take up too much time, but on the note of the Civil War, a lot of, you know, those folks that I, you know, talk to about this or the few that I do, um, who I disagree with, they, they continue to say that, um, you know, uh, Russia was, you know, unprovoked invasion and, and especially, you know, the, the, the Civil War going on after the coup for, um, leading up to the invasion, you know, that my I, I, in my mind, just from listening to you and all, all these other reporters that like the the West, Western Ukraine, the Kiev government is guilty of so many more attacks on the Donbass region and like ethnic Russians than the other way of like Russian separatists, like you're talking about hurting Western Ukraine, like and so that where's the like what what you know? Can, can you just speak to that a little bit that this, you know, six years, the civil war is really um, the Western Western Ukraine has a little bit more guilt in that or a lot more guilt. I don't know. Yeah, well, um, I. I know that in, in the most recent three years of the of the Donbass civil war, that 80 percent of the civilian casualties were coming on the um, rebel held side. Right. Um, that's one figure that I've I've cited before. And yeah, um in places like Mariupol and at the very start, you know, in places like Odessa, where dozens of 
people who were protesting the Maidan coup, they were, they were burned alive, burned alive. And there was total impunity for that. Like no one was ever held to account for that. And so, you know, atrocities like this get totally ignored because the victims are not on our side. So we're not supposed to care about them in the West. Well, well, and that's, and that's my point. This is the last thing here, but like my, these folks that I'm, my friends that I'm talking to, they're, they're like, no, this is, you know, all of this death and destruction in the, you know, uh, time leading up to the actual invasion, the civil war for like six years, right? It was all Ukrainians being killed by Russians. And it, yeah, well, that's just, that's because they, they've, they haven't been um, able to access any actual facts. Uh, they've been fed propaganda. And so, I mean, I can't blame people for, for, for thinking that in the U.S. because we're so heavily propagandized, but it's just not true. Um, and there was a time when Western media would actually report on this, honestly. So back in 2015, you could read in the New York Times that the people on the front lines of Ukraine's fight against the rebels are the neo-Nazi Azov Battalion. And now the Times, of course, won't call them neo-Nazi anymore because... Uh, that's too in- inconvenient for the narrative. And on CNN, uh, recently on the Jimmy Dore show, I played a clip of CNN in 2014 reporting on all the atrocities committed by Ukrainian forces on people of the Donbass. And they interviewed victims and showed mm. their faces. And you know, it's a bit, but but you can't do that anymore. I'll have to look that that piece up uh, again. All right, thanks so much, Aaron. Thank you. Okay. Hello. Hi there. Hey, Aaron. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Uh, great show. I was just curious if you had read the New York Times article about the Durham report the other day. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. I, I wanted to talk about that actually today in my rant, but I I felt like I was ranting for too long. So, well, uh, yeah. I, I mean, let me rant about it for a second. I was in a comment section where I was basically trying to tell folks that took – Russiagate as gospel that, hey, there's a lot of stuff out there that, that says it's not gospel. And some of the folks in that comment thread directed me to that article. Of course. So I, right. Well, I mean, I don't know about a course, because if you read two thirds of the way through it, there's a paragraph that pretty much concedes. If I'm if I read it right, it pretty much concedes everything that you've been saying for for three years that. That Hillary and the and the Steele dossier were were false and and it was all propaganda. So I'm not sure, you know, that's a, a separate note. I'm not sure why those folks would use that as an example of how that exonerates anybody on the Hillary side of it. But the other part, I guess, that I wanted you to kind of talk about was, what do you see coming from Durham? Is there anything? prosecutable coming from his report. Right. Okay. So just to um, brief anyone who's not familiar with what this is about. So John Durham was appointed as a special prosecutor under uh, Trump to investigate the origins of the Trump Russia investigation. He's been working on that for a few years now. And last week, the t- or, or uh, this past week, the, the Times put out an article about Durham just saying that he's come up with nothing. Uh, his case was a dud. Um, and, uh, he, you know, tried to chase all these, uh, rabbit holes that just went nowhere. Um, but actually you read the article and it's like every other Russiagate story. It's the sources are from people who have an interest in promoting Russiagate and the way everything is framed is deceptive. And, um, look, I wish the times would admit that, you know, I'm right. 
and they're wrong, but I, I didn't get that from this piece. I mean, they, every time they have to acknowledge the fraud that was used to sustain Russiagate, they have to distort the picture. So when they talk about Hillary Clinton funding the Steele dossier, they say things like Hillary Clinton indirectly funded the Steele dossier, which makes right. it sound like it was like sort of like inadvertent. It wasn't on purpose. Well, actually, no, what happened was <laughs> to fund the Steele dossier, Hillary Clinton got her law firm to hire a private firm, which then hired Christopher Steele. That's how they indirectly funded it. So things like that. Um, and when they talk about, you know, they also water, the Times also waters down uh, the fact that the FBI committed fraud in relying on the Steele dossier and misleading the FISA court into believing that they weren't and that the information in the Steele dossier was credible, which they knew it wasn't. So the Times still has not owned up to that. It's, it's written, like the main writer on that story is a guy named Charlie Savage, who was a dupe. He, he, he was the main reporter by the Times who got duped by the whole Russian bounties in Afghanistan scam. He was used to put that out there in the summer of 2020. And then even as information kept coming out, undermining his claim that Russia was paying for bounties on U.S. troops in Afghanistan, he kept doubling down. And his efforts to try to grapple with facts that were completely undermining everything he had said was really comical. And uh, when I get a chance one day, I will write about it because it, it was very funny. So anyway, this is him now doing the same thing with Russiagate. And What's going on is that Durham is almost done his investigation. Uh, you know, I know from reliable sources uh, that Durham is writing his report now, and uh, it's expected to be finished in the in the coming months. Um, and uh, he's—I think he found a lot of damning stuff. I don't think he's going to engage in any more prosecutions because it's very hard to prosecute these cases. But the question is, you know, has has he brought information into the public record? And he has. Uh, he, in the case of Michael Sussman, a Clinton lawyer, he brought into the public record that the Clinton campaign and the FBI pushed a concocted tale of a secret communication between Trump and a Russian bank server and all the fraud that was used to generate that. Um, in the case of Igor Danchenko, who said said to be the main source of the Steele dossier, he brought into the public record that the FBI spoke to Danchenko, who told him, who told the FBI that that like he basically embellished everything he said to steal and that there was no sourcing at all for the steel dossier. And the FBI hid all that from the FISA court and the public and let people believe for whatever, two or three years that Steele was like a serious person and not a scam artist. So um, this is the time's effort to deflect from all that and to try to uh, get people um, you know, to lead people to believe that Durham found nothing when really they don't know actually what Durham found yet. And they have some examples where they, go through something that Durham's done. And, um, but I think it's my, it's my, if I'm taking a guess, I think they're, I painted a very misleading picture. And I'm basing that on what I know about some of the claims in this article, which I'm going to write about soon, but also just precedent. Every single time there's an effort to promote Russiagate and its narratives and make it look serious. It fails. So if, if history is any guide, this is only the latest example of that. Well, I, I, yeah, I appreciate that, and I hope you do have a chance to. I hope you have a chance to read that or read that one paragraph again, because I, I was just like, holy crap! I can't believe that they're conceding. I mean, it feels like if you just pulled at those strings a little bit, a lot of that could right. unravel. But anyway, I, you know, I, I just also wanted to say that I, I feel like the Twitter, you know, all this stuff kind of is linked to the Twitter files. It feels like, and I just feel like. The conversation that Brianna Joy Gray and Glenn Greenwald had the other day about about the source of the information and how it's being disseminated, I thought that was a huge disservice to the whole 
to progressive media. I don't. I, if Andrea Mitchell and Chuck Todd had that same conversation, you'd have an aneurysm, right? So I feel like uh, the progressive media. You know, you said a long time ago that they can't have one channel because there's too many personalities. I think that's Exhibit A of we need to. We're fighting kind of a a, a huge fight here against propaganda. We need not. You know, muddy yeah. the waters with that kind of conversation. So, okay, I don't well, need you to comment yeah, I on that because I, didn't I don't see want to that, exacerbate so, that. Yeah, I didn't yeah. see that, so so I can't comment on that. But I mean, I, I do know that Glenn's been very supportive of, of Matt's reporting on the Twitter files. And uh, right, actually, there's a great interview that uh, if you uh, Glenn Greenwald has a show on Rumble, and he, he interviewed Matt on Friday, and it was great. Uh, oh, good. I recommend good. it. Okay. okay, thanks for the call. Chuck. Thank you. Appreciate yep. it. Hello, Sterling. Hey, Aaron. I have a brother named Aaron, by the way. Great it's a great name. name. Yeah. A great, uh, his okay. parents chose well. Yeah. I, and well, actually, my great grandfather was Aaron Moses, which is really funny because he's not Jewish. Um, he mm. fought in the Civil War. I don't know. And then my mother named my brother that. So we like it. Um, okay. So what came to mind when you were first doing your rant, obviously, about everybody seeing, wanting to go to war so badly? It was on March 26th that Biden said, this man cannot remain in power. That's and right. For me, when he said that, I was like, that's basically a declaration of war. Because if you're that man in power and you're a superpower and the United States president has just said, this man can't not remain. I mean, that's basically a declaration of war. We've wanted this war for a very long time. Um possibly as long as my ex-husband. I met him in 1990. Um, he's Estonian. And it was really interesting because to be with him then, um, Estonia got their independence in 91. And when I met him, he said, "Do you have you ever heard of Estonia? And I said, well, is it in the Olympics? Because embarrassingly, but I was 20, I, didn't, I hadn't heard of it. And he said, no, we're not in the Olympics because they were a part of Russia at the time. So um, now they're, you know, since 91, uh, this was such a big deal for them. And they are very nationalistic. They would meet in different places. Estonians have done very well um, since 91 and even before then if they managed to get out of Russia. Or, yeah, well, uh, yeah. And they would meet in Australia or France every four years. All these Estonians would just descend on a different city. Um, so they want this war very much because I also can't tell you how much they really do not like Russia. But they didn't really let me know that until I went there with him. And it's a beautiful city, Tallinn. And it's really bizarre because all around the city are all of these like really gray kind of dark Russian buildings. Um, it just was what it was. You're never going to convince me to hate another nation. It's just that simple. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to go to St. Petersburg. And he said, no, we were 20, so we were 200 miles from St. Petersburg. And he said, that's not a good idea. They don't like Americans. He didn't say, we don't like Russians. Um, they don't like us. Um, he made it more about Americans. So it was really weird. I mean, like I said, we were young. He didn't know how to handle it. I don't think, I mean, it was just a strange thing, but they really do want this war. They do not like I Russia. got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I know. And that's a problem. And, and, and that's fair enough. That's, that's their right. But the question is, should the rest of the world be involved in fighting that war on their behalf? And, and do they have the right to fuel a war and not in their own country? Uh, and that was my question to yeah. him. And would he send his son there? You know, he, he, I couldn't have children. He remarried, he has a son. His son's like 18 now. 
And I'm like, mm. are you going to send him to fight this war? Because are you expect what's going on here? But there's a real sentiment with Germany. Um, you know, a lot of Estonians sided with Germany um, after the war and went to Germany. Um, there is a big kind of nationalist kind of, yeah, not a, not a good thing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's really sad. It's a big mess. And um, after I after we divorced um, amicably, I only wanted him to be happy. Um, always still do. I dated a Russian man who lived in America and nothing intentional. I just happened to meet him. And um, one of the nicest people I've ever met and couldn't have been happier to be an American. So it's just been a weird thing. You know, right now, I just don't want anybody. I just don't think war is ever a good idea. And this is this is all for the wrong reasons. And yeah. Yeah. It's bad. So anyway, yeah. we'll see. But thank you for your accurate reporting. And thank you, Sterling. Yeah. Thank you for Have the call. a good one. You too. Okay. Hey, can you hear me? Is it working? Yep. Hey, Aaron. How's it going? How's it going? Oh, man. So uh, this past week, I read this article. I, I'm not a Newsweek reader, but it's it kind of like, I guess, like crossed my feed. It was in Newsweek. And it was called The West Calls Putin's Bluff by John Jackson. And I wouldn't say this is a particularly unique article in the moment, but as you can kind of guess, like the the reasoning of the article was that even though Putin is like a psychotic madman who's going to invade all of Europe for no reason, he's also highly risk averse and kind of a pushover. And so we shouldn't respect any of Russia's red lines <laughs> yeah. before. Yeah. So it makes us argument for basically infinite escalation because we know that Russia won't respond. And um, she's like, I don't know if you believe in like, you know, ancestral memory or whatever. But when I read this, I kind of had this tingle on my spine where it was like, you know, how many times has this article, you know, pretty close to word for word been written in the past preceding a catastrophic war, you know, like it seems like the, you know, the classic argument, like the enemy's like going to get us, but they're weak. So we should like, we shouldn't be afraid to escalate and escalate and escalate. And, you know, where does the escalation ladder lead? And in this case, it's like, you know, apocalyptic. And uh, it, it just, it's so creepy, this feeling that all of this has happened before and it's happening again. I mean, I know a little bit about history and, you know, Germany in the 30s, there was this near universal consensus, especially among the academics, that Poland was about to invade. So they needed to preemptively invade Poland in self-defense. And Imperial Japan, um, you know, some really beautiful spiritual traditions in Japan, but all the Shinto priests and the Buddhist priests at the time, you know, gave their blessing that, you know, violently, you know, forming a empire in the Pacific, you know, was a good idea. And um, when I look around, it, it kind of stuns me, like with the stakes that exist, um, why nobody that seems to be part of the, you know, the upper echelon of, political, military, or media class speaks up. Yeah, well, there's one exception. There's one exception, which is Mark Milley, the most powerful uh, military officer in the country. Uh, He came out in public a few months ago for diplomacy. Uh, And it was clear he did that after 
the forces inside the White House who don't want diplomacy, like Victoria Nuland and Blinken, it was you know, that they were prevailing. And so that's why I think he went public and said, we need to have talks to shut this war down to end it because Ukraine's gone as far as they can. And what's amazing is that not even the mo- not even the top U.S. military officer can convince Washington to change course. And uh, even progressive Democrats who right before that had also called for diplomacy and then retracted their call for diplomacy when they got called names for 24 hours. They even couldn't see that as a sign that, oh, yeah, maybe we were onto something. Let's actually put that out there again. No, they stayed silent. So that's how crazily proxy war feverish Washington is that even like a top general, the commander, like the, the top U.S. military officer uh, cannot shake people from this path of war uh, and get them to support negotiations. And that's just, it's, it's I'm, I've never seen anything like that before. And I think the reason why Millie said all this, I mean, uh, you know, I don't know the guy, so I'm not going to assume he really has a much concern for Ukrainian or Russian life, but I think he realized where this is going, that if the war continues at the stage, it's pushing Russia and NATO into direct confrontation. He doesn't want to fight Russia. He doesn't want to fight Russia because that could easily trigger nuclear war. He also doesn't want to fight Russia because Russia can fight back and he's going to lose a lot of forces if he does. So that's why that's why I think he was, uh, you know, um, driven to call for negotiations. And I'm glad he did. And it's just amazing that his his call didn't make a dent like it was news for like a day. And that was it. No, it doesn't get discussed. Man, who cares? Uh, just as like, it, you know, um, just as all we've learned about the U.S. and U.K. sabotaging peace talks between Ukraine and Russia last spring, um, that also just never gets mentioned. Uh, it's been mentioned, you know, kind of by Fiona Hill, the former White House expert. She wrote an article in Foreign Affairs in September saying that U.S. officials knew that there was an outline of a peace deal between Ukraine and Russia. Uh, and that's it. She didn't say what happened to it, uh, but we know what happened to it because Sources close to Zelensky said that Boris Johnson killed it, but that's it. You know, it's, there's no interest at all, uh, even though it's all right there out in the open. It's insane. I, I kind of am tempted to start thinking about what are the the Freudian or Jungian explanations behind all this. That maybe there's this unconscious desire for some kind of catharsis through apocalyptic dis- destruction that's like pushing these people. Because I. I mean, I'm an outsider. I can't really know, but I'm, I am very thankful for the few people that speak up. And, you know, I guess Jeffrey Sachs is kind of an insider and I'm appreciative of him as well. Yeah. But and, and, and people like him talk about how in Washington, there's just a prevailing attitude of fuck Russia, that they hate Russia, that this is a, a holdover of the Cold War. And they associate Russia with something they have just nothing but contempt for, and they are willing to overlook all the consequences if they feel as if the outcome is weakening Russia or even destroying it. And that's, that's what rules our political class right now. And, um, it's, it's insane and it's leading us to where we are. Thank you for the call. Ian. Appreciate it. Take care. Andrew. Hello, sir. Hope you're well. Um, I, have you heard about this RAND study about avoiding a long war? Because it's yes. Yeah. Can you talk about it a little uh, if you haven't already? Yeah. So uh, RAND is the Pentagon tied think tank that put out that famous study in 2019 or 2018 about like the best ways to overextend and unbalance Russia. And 
economically, the top proposals were to like cut off Russian fuel exports. So, you know, mission accomplished with the Ukraine proxy war. But also the the, the other uh, main uh, goal or, or uh, policy that they recommended was to draw Russia into Ukraine by increasing lethal support to Ukraine. And that will force Russia to intervene and that will bleed Russia. So, hey, also uh, that that uh, plan has been adopted. But now Rand has, had, has a new study about how maybe this actually isn't such a good idea <laughs> for the U.S., and it talks about how a long protracted war, which is where this is going, uh, is not good for U.S. interests. And one of the reasons is they say it's going to be harder to compete with China, uh, which is true because, of course, this is, you know, this war is is catastrophic. And there are costs even to, even to the U.S. as well, even though, of course, they're not bearing the brunt of the cost. And so, yeah. Um, now, this is one of the co-authors is a guy named Samuel Cherup, who has been uh, pretty uh, consistent in calling Ukraine for what it is. And so, for example, he was one of the people for a long time pointing out that Ukraine was making no effort to implement the Minsk Accords, the peace agreement between Ukraine and the Donbass rebels. He's been honest about that for a long time. I've quoted him in some of my articles. He also pointed out that the Donbass rebels, while certainly they have the backing of Russia and there have been forces uh, inside Ukraine from Russia throughout the last eight years, that that still is a local movement. It's, these aren't just all like Russians who came over from Russia to invade the country, that these are local people fighting uh, a rebellion against a government that took power after a coup in 2014. And uh, he's been willing to acknowledge that. So I'm not surprised to see that he's now saying that we need to get off this path of endless war because it's gonna be costly for everybody. Yeah, I think it's a really important tool this study, actually, because anti-war activists don't really have too many think tanks, you know what I mean? So when they kind of do the work for us, it's very valuable. And the way I see the war now, I think you mentioned they're asking for jets now immediately after getting the tanks. And then, uh, you know, it, it, that's the next step, but there's a next step after that. All of that is just still arming them, right? And I think the main thing is that it comes down to two potential camps that are in D.C., which is the pretending to be, you know, invested in Ukraine camp, which is the one sending them all the arms. And then there's the camp that really wants to go to war and actually send NATO in, like people like Lindsey Graham, which is what they say. I mean, they want to send NATO in. And I, I think it's not unrealistic to say that there's a faction out there that really believes that. So the question to me is if that struggle uh, plays out where the NATO faction, the NATO intervention faction wins, I, I don't think that's really possible because it's suicidal. I think it's suicidal. I think adults in the room realize that. And Yes, but the point is something could happen very quickly that makes that kind of escalation inevitable where, you know, um, like, I, I mean, I agree with you. I don't think NATO is going to intervene, but it's just like we need to do everything we can to reduce the risk of that. That's the point. Is, isn't that kind of something the Rand article mentions, too? Or the study kind of men mentions that the longer this goes on. They, they, I think the term they used was that the, 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 the length of the war is intrinsically linked with the, the risk involved. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, well, yeah, but I, I'm not sure. I mean, I didn't actually read the whole thing, so I, I just yeah. kind of skimmed it. But, um, well, but that would make what you're saying. It, uh, uh, like that would make sense for sure. Yeah. Th that the longer the, the war goes on, the more the risk of a direct NATO Russia conflict. I mean, like that's where it's headed. I, that's why I yeah. think Mark Milley called for diplomacy because he doesn't want that.
I just think that if this tool could be used to show people that we're not going to be able to win a, a long war, a get, quote unquote win or help Ukraine win a long war without direct NATO intervention. Yes. And, and we just say, hey, that's off the table. Yep. Then what's left? Yeah. You know, yeah. It, yeah. It, it, Fair we enough. have to negotiate. So yep. anyway, thanks for your time. Thank I you. I really appreciate it. Thanks for the call. Okay, Jason. Hey, Aaron. How are you doing? Hi there. Hey, um, uh, one non-serious question. Um, how's your cat nutmeg doing? How's my what? Uh, cat nutmeg. Oh, that, well, that's that's my parents' cat. Oh, okay. Gotcha. As far as I know, she hasn't put them in the hospital, which is which is all I care about. Because <laughs> yeah. the concerned. last cat they had did. So, uh, yeah. I do remember that story. Yeah. Yeah, I was wondering if like uh, nutmeg had nutmeg you yet. No, and I mean, and that's when I I, I came out controversially for uh, the death penalty. I I I really wanted to put down or or at least give away that that previous cat because I thought she was a threat to my parents. Um, and uh, I stand by that. I do. I know. <laughs> anyway, but 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 eventually that cat Lucy passed away. And now they have nutmeg. And oh. Nutmeg's a little nicer. Yeah. Well, if nutmeg turns violent. Um... Give me a heads up. I'll, I'll take her off your hands. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. That's good to know. Thank you. But um, uh, another serious question. So let's say Ukraine is meets their victory achievements, takes back Donbass and I don't know, maybe even Crimea in there. I mean, seems like a fantasy to me, but yeah, what's what's the um, I mean, what that just like kind of takes us back to 2014. I mean, don't you think I, I don't think the people of Donbass or Crimea really want to be part of Ukraine. Um, so, you know, they, let's say they pushed Russia out and then what does, what happens? And they're kind of like an occupying force then. In, uh, uh, that's a great point. I mean, don't want to be like, part of Ukraine. That's a great point. Um, in Crimea, absolutely. Every poll, U.S. government, just like look at U.S. government funded polls. Every poll shows the majority want to be a part of Russia. And they've right. been trying to separate for a long time. There's been an independence movement in Crimea since 1991 after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So, you know, Donbass, I don't know. Um, I, I suspect it's more split. I mean, uh, people that I know who've been there think I'm wrong and that it would be overwhelmingly in support of joining Russia. But the point is, let's find out. Let's have internationally supervised referendums. I think um, that would be a good outcome. Uh, maybe it's too late, but I, I think that proposal should be tried. It sounds sensible to me. Yeah, I, I think that would be a, a great thing as part of any um, peace deal would be like, hey, let's, you know, let, let the people decide where they want to be. Yeah, yeah, yep. Okay, all right. Well, hey, you have a good weekend. And, you too. Uh, take care, Aaron. Thanks for the call. Bye. You too. Bye-bye. Okay, Gator. Hey, Aaron, how you doing? Um, Hi there. I'm just wondering whether, um, okay, very quickly, I just think that the um, the narrative switch is essentially a form of frog boiling. You know, it, it, we're just going, oh, we're not at war, but we need to help out. And then it, the narrative escalates so that you don't you don't go, yeah, we now need to go to war with Russia right from the beginning because citizens wouldn't would would uh, be a bit annoyed at that at the beginning. But once you once you've sunk all the money in and you basically you've got your balls in to the hot water, you know, you might as well sit down in the bath, mightn't you? That's kind of how the narrative's running here, as far as I can tell. Um, and it's not a surprise that the the only the people saying we're at war are actually saying what they knew all along. You know, they, they knew we were at war. The Russians knew. They, they, they said, we won't talk to Zelensky anymore. We need to speak to the organ grinder, not the monkey. I mean, they were saying that in April. 
right? And, and, and the whole of the proposals that they put together were aimed at the international community, not just Ukraine, really. So it's, it's not a surprise. It's only a surprise if you're a, if you're a dope, you know, and, 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 and kept a dope by reading CNN or whatever. So I'm not sure that it's that big a deal for people in probably this audience. But the thing I wanted to put to you actually, though, is this. I'm wondering whether you guys at the grey zone and with other independent people who are already take what are, what is essentially an activist journalist stance would consider trying to to directly activate your readership so what would i mean i mean take your your article on the opcw issue you could easily turn that into a skeleton letter or a template letter and share that via substack a specific substack so that we we can go and take take that information and for the people who are too lazy use a template for the people who are a bit more creative and want to say, let's go, Brandon, or whatever else they've got to add in, they take the skeleton and then they send it to the US president. OK, and then they copy in you guys so that you know who sent them and you can see the number of sends that build. Essentially, you're just building a political campaign or a political lobbying campaign, asking questions and driving accountability around your work because you're already taking, you know, max you. Um, you already take stances, right? So it's not like you're not already, your colours aren't out there. And I think that this is what's missing to some extent is the activation of, of people in, in a way that's easy for them to do. That actually means that the US president is getting 140 people in this room now, then maybe next week it'll be 2,000 as your as readers start to pick up and it'll be multiple thousand people. Yeah. Start getting annoying, annoying messages asking for and, and then it feeds your news cycle because because every period you can say well we've had two thousand people write to biden on this we've had ten thousand we've had da, 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 and you can actually make um a form of narrative off that now i have tested this for myself in certain industrial matters around covid and i actually got results i managed to get complete strangers to engage on issues that i was flagging i got and it they yeah did, yeah they did the work and yeah. and i got regulators into difficult positions as a result of this so right. would is it something that you'd consider doing well to the, i see maybe this is because i'm naive and i have a sort of a sentimental attachment to you know my idea of like what what a journalist should be but i i mean i take stances because i feel like it's important to be honest about my views and not pretend that i'm just like some neutral actor with no opinions i, I think that's silly but when it gets into actual direct activism uh, you know i kind of just like doing the journalism and letting the world decide what to do with it, you know? But I think at the same time, I care about all these issues, obviously. And I'm a citizen of this earth too. So I have my responsibility to do as much as I can to advance the causes I care about. Um, so I, yeah, I'll think about that. But, but, I'm, but I'm just being honest with you. Something about it doesn't sit right with me because I, like, I, I just like the idea of doing journalism and letting that speak for itself. Cool. No worries. Let's just throw it out there. Cheers, mate. Thank, thanks for the call. Nestor. Hey, Aaron. How you doing? Hi there. Good. Good, good. Uh, good to hear. Uh, so, yeah, it, uh, 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 well, well, the true colors are finally coming out. You know, they, little by little, they tell on themselves and uh, they can't help it. It's like, a, it's like a criminal, you know, when you commit the crime, you can't help but to brag about it. Um, not a lot of people... <clears throat> I, I don't know, man, like this, it feels like uh, these people have just some huge inferiority complex. And this has been the, the, the core, uh, the core reason of their being of why they are so hell bent 
on war and making sure that they put everyone down, uh, making sure that no one's above them because they they fear uh, they fear being uh, exposed as the inferior people that they are because only someone that's so insecure about who they are are so hell bent on on just continuing to escalate this war. I mean, just uh, I think what was it, this week? They're already talking about they're going to go to war with China in two years. I mean, I, I, like, I know they're already making Japan uh, more militarized, which is another insanity because uh, pretty much all mainland Asians hate the hell out of Japan. No one has forgotten the millions of people that the Japanese empire killed. I mean, uh, China would have more allies if they actually got Japan involved. So, so it, it's just, uh, it really is just these people need some serious, serious help because they have such a problematic inferior complex that's going to get us all killed. I totally, that, I totally I agree with you uh, about the inferiority complex. And if you were to reduce the U.S. government down to a personality type, it wouldn't be someone you'd want to hang around with, someone who's constantly paranoid about others uh, being a mortal threat to them and also talking about how great they are and how uh, uh, exceptional they are as a person, how they're, you know, a model for the rest of the world and they have the right to go in and do what they want elsewhere. I mean, it's not a very appealing person. And yeah, it speaks to, I think, as you talk about a deep insecurity in these people where to, you know, get some validation of life, they feel they need to subjugate other people and dominate other people and push around people who they see as um, insufficiently obedient you know, um, and out of line. And, uh, so the psychological aspect of this is, uh, is I think, you know, it's not something I focus on very much, but I, I think it's very important. I, I think you've identified it. So thank you, Nestor. Appreciate it. All right. We're going to go into lightning round now because I have to wrap this up soon. So we're going to have, uh, we'll get to as many callers as we can in the time we have. Thomas, go ahead. Hey brothers over here in Turkey. Um, just, uh, wanted to first say, uh, Hedges, Taibi, and then you, brother. Third best journalist in the history of journalism. <laughs> I'll take it. Thank you. Thank you. All right, brother. Uh, <laughs> this is real quick. This is off topic. Okay. Last week, uh, you and Katie were talking about, had a caller asking about voting Democrat versus Republican and uh, basically lesser of two evils. My question is, uh, would you vote for a third party? And if so, is there a specific party or is there a specific third party candidate that you uh, that you like? Um, of course, I vote for a third party. I, I think we need a third party, um, or else we're we're screwed, you know. Because we have right now we have one party, but just with two different factions, and so absolutely. But in terms of who and what, I mean, I um, I like Jill Stein. I I thought she was great. Um, in terms of who's on the scene right now, uh, oof. Like the the next Green Party leader was Howie Hawkins, who's like, um, from what I know, he's a Russia gator. He was a Syria a Syria dirty warrior. I assume he's also a Ukraine proxy warrior. So, <laughs> you know, I, I couldn't get behind that. But in, ter- in principle, of course, yeah, of course, I think we should we need a third party. And I, you know, it's just difficult. Like recently, there was some there's an article in the Washington Post that said that union membership is at a record low in the U.S. And I just think it's can be so hard to organize a third party if workers are so 
decimated and, and organized labor is so decimated. And I, I think we need that to be able to sustain a kind of, you know, political organization that can actually be there for working people. And so just again, one more time, you said Jill Stein and what was yeah, Jill, Stein, Jill Stein of the Green Party, I, I thought was great. Um, I thought she, and what was know, the other guy? And then so now there's another leader of the Green Party. His name is Howie Hawkins. Okay, cool, and, cool, but cool. he, to, in my, uh, on the issues I care about, he sucks. Um, he, you know, <laughs> okay, so I can't, you know, yeah. uh, so Green Party then, though, right? I mean, Green Party in the Jill Stein era, uh, okay. yes, uh, is, is, is would have been my preference, but, um, okay, you yeah, can move now, on to the next person. Thank you, brother. Yeah, yeah, now I'm now I'm politically homeless, you know, and uh, oh, I, shit. I, I suspect many people out there. Well, if you make much. it over here to Turkey, you got a spot in my uh crib. I appreciate that, I appreciate that. All Thank right, brother. You. Thank you. Take care. Okay, Michelle. Hey, um, politically homeless, aren't we all? Um, yeah. All I was going to ask is, I saw someone post something about what makes, uh, what determines whether something has become a world war. And they had put something, and I didn't know if it was true, that like as these tanks and additional things are getting sent more directly that somehow constituted based on international law, the ability of like, it includes them into the conflict, which I don't even understand how, since we've been sending weapons, that would be the line. But do you have any sense of like how that determination is made? I'm not an international law, law person, so I don't know. Um, but I just think it's like if you're sustaining a war with your weapons, you're helping to select targets, you're providing intelligence. I, I think you're a belligerent. <laughs> I think it's fair to call you a belligerent. Yeah, that's. A, I kind of assumed that that was always the case. And then they were talking specifically about the tanks. I would. I just wasn't sure what difference that line was. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe it isn't. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, uh, look, it's kind of like. It's a, it's a clever way to say, oh, like we're not fighting this war because we're not sending our troops. But if we're sending everything else, <laughs> it's very yeah. clear that, that we're a blood team. Yeah. Thank you, Michelle, for the call. Thank Okay, Ken. Hey, Aaron. Uh, hey there. Love your work. Uh, thanks for everything you do. And I was just curious if you had a sense of everyone around you kind of taking a lot of State Department's uh, narrative at face value regarding Ukraine. And it's really surprising and shocking to me that as an American, we went through so many decades of the government lying to this populace to justify violence for various corporate, you know, motives. And we're still, it still feels like everyone around us is under like a, you know, an opiate of some sort. And so Tell me about not it. learning. Tell so. me about it. Tell me about it. You know, I, uh, you know, I, I talk often about, um, a lot of my progressive media colleagues being duped and it's awkward for me and it strains some friendships and some people I don't talk to anymore. Um, I worked at democracy now for 10 years. I used to love that show uh, before I worked there. And while I was there, I thought it played such an essential service and I learned so much from it. And in the last, you know, um, seven years since I left, uh, I think it's changed. And I think it's fallen for so much of the propaganda it used to challenge. And that doesn't mean it was perfect before. Like, you know, um, during Libya, we put out some stuff I think was totally wrong. We we parroted some State Department propaganda. And uh, that was, you know, not 
good, but you know, we at least tried to correct it and we allowed debates. And now it's just like, um, when it comes to Russiagate and Ukraine and Syria and all these places, there's just, I, I don't get it. Um, but I think Russiagate has certainly accelerated this trend because Russiagate, the heroes of Russiagate were the CIA and the FBI. And so for liberals and progressives, all of a sudden there was this incentive to see them as like the good guys because they're the ones supposedly uncovering Trump's collusion with Russia. And in the process, it also just inculcated in liberals this Cold War year fever that it was like good to oppose diplomacy with Russia because Trump supposedly was installed by Russia. And a lot of people fell for that. And in media, it's just you get incentivized if you drink the Kool-Aid. It's just a fact. And it used to be like what made progressive media cool to me was that it refused to do that. Like that's why I kind of got involved in, in the first place is to like not drink the Kool-Aid. But I don't know, you know, people, things change and we have a powerful propaganda system where people um, are denied access to the facts and it takes a while to maybe get all the facts you need. And um, and also people have lives and, and families they want to support and, you know, they want careers and there's all these incentives to toe the line. And it's been weird. Um, I'm really thankful that I've been able to keep doing what I'm doing in this space because there was a time when it was not, it was looking pretty bleak that like for me to hold on to like what I thought was um, the truth and my sense of what the facts were about Russiagate, I, I felt as if that was going to hurt my career prospects. And I'm really happy that, you know, things worked out, but it's, it sucks. It, it's, it sucks. And it's, um, you know, one day I, you know, I hope to write something about it or something, but yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. I can't believe some of the stuff that some people I really respect and have worked with have fallen for it's, uh, and have learned from, um, have fallen for it. It's pretty, it's pretty unbelievable. Yeah. I share that with you. Thank you. Thanks. Okay. Tom. Yeah. Hi. Um, I want more of your comedy phone calls with Vince Vaughn. Ah, uh, yes. You're referring to the Jimmy Dore show uh, when I was filling yes. in for Jimmy. Yeah. Well, that was, uh, you know, I got a lot of feedback. Some people thought I was too stiff and, but you know, I, I hadn't read the script before I did it and I was a little, maybe a little nervous, but I'm, I'm glad you liked it. Yes. I think, um, Jimmy Dore's, uh, show is, or the Jimmy Dore show is, is a lot of things. But among those, it's a comedy show, and yeah. it ridicules things that need to be ridiculed, and uh, that's a great thing. We need absolutely, to absolutely. All right, all right. Thanks for the call, Tom. Appreciate it. All right. Well, that's going to do it, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in. I really appreciate you spending some time with that with me. Um, and thanks to everyone who called in. And I'll be back next.